Greetings, boils and ghouls. You're listening to Crypt Creepers, the podcast where we exhume the greatest horror anthology of our generation, Tales from the Crypt. I'm Mary Johnston, and with me is my brother, Thomas Johnston. And with us is my brother-in-law, Andrew Crawford. I don't get to say my own name. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's, um... I didn't think it was a little bit weird. I, I don't know. You don't think this is this is always this is the weak point. In I'm the having crypt a bit of deja vu. Did, did we did we do this when you guessed it on categorical oracle? Uh, you mean the show? The show that I host all the time. <laughs> that, yeah, that, classic, that you guys guessed it on the classic TJ TJ, TJ, uh, TJ uh, No, remember Thomas said hour. both of our names. Oh, <laughs> we weren't God. allowed to say our own names. That's oh, why you're having okay. deja vu because I got to say my name, but you didn't get to say yours. Got you, got you, got you. So I, Thomas I, is I, a name I, hog. I get it. Yeah. Only, only, only I touch the microphone. <laughs> um. So Andrew, who are you? Why are you? Why are you? Hey, look, Mary, 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 I think I did a very good job of handling who Andrew is at the top of the episode. I even said his name. <laughs> For him. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> I like, like how it? usually we give a, we give kind of a funny, uh, spooky uh, introduction for people, and instead you just said my brother-in-law. <laughs> you also said I was just your brother, so it was like it was like I thought well, we were doing yeah, a bit. And no. then I said his name. I took his autonomy away from him. What's spookier than that? <laughs> That's the spookiest thing I can imagine. Fair. Fair. Some guy is uh, like, "Oh, I'm your brother. You're my brother-in-law, and I'm not going to let you talk." I mean, I would have gone with uh, Andrew Clawford as my <laughs> fake name because that's kind of spooky. But <laughs> oh, that that's just good. that's just you know, yeah, just just wait, notes, wait. notes, production notes. Don't worry. Yeah, do we need? Oh, do we need like horror personas like Sven Gulli and you know Elvira kind of things? Hmm. Do we? Need, should I be? Should I be podcasting with like a full face of grease paint? I assumed you Thomas were. John's <laughs> tombstone. Oh, oh, oh. John's. T- Oh gosh! And Mary, John, also John Tombstone, because <laughs> you guys have the same last name. Uh, anyway, uh, no, no, no. My name would be oh my gosh, Barry oh! John Tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> guys, how has it taken us nearly a year to figure this out? Oh my god! I don't know. I don't know. Um, back to See, your original question, Mary. Um, I, I am, I'm a- a- Andrew Clawford. <laughs> uh, producer of Crypt Creepers, uh, co-host of Categorical Oracle, and a general all-around good guy, I like to think. Um, why am I here? Well, let me hear. It's not time hear. for that yet. Oh, well. <laughs> well. You need to look at the stage direction. I never do. <laughs> why am I here? Mary, just let him talk. Why are you here? No, silence. No, no. Cut his microphone. Cut his microphone. Cut his throat. All right, I'll, I'll cut my mic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very glad to have you as our first guest oh, hey. on Crypt Creepers. Glad to um, crack the seal on that uh, crypt. That's oh, it. Yeah, that's you got to do. You got to do. Seal? You know. You know. You get, I, Elsa, is, don't cross what, the seal. Maybe we should. No, no. Not that's what they. That's, yes. <laughs> that's what. That's what they tell you at ghoul school. They're all like, "No, man, don't crack the seal. You drank too much. Don't crack the seal." <laughs> is ghoul school uh, girl school? Um, it's uh, it's where ghouls go. It's it's actually elective. It's a higher education institution. It's it sort work? of like the university system, but there's more cannibalism involved. Is mm-hmm. the do the ghouls learn how to become a plumber at this school? 
like a trade no, no, it's school? not like trade. It's no, it's not like trade school. It's 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 thoroughly useless. It's more like a university. It is night school, though. I think we can all agree. Is, right? Yeah, <laughs> but it's sure. actually, but it is night school with a K. So there's lots, there's <laughs> lots of money Python and the Holy Grail and jousting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it fright school? Oh. oh. Is it happening during a fright night? Well, let's mm. just know that they play a lot of casket ball. <laughs> Uh, do you think that do you think that Andrew Crawford got in on a basketball scholarship? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I prefer to let the man speak for himself. Well, Andrew, are you ready to uh, sing the Tales from the Crypt theme song? Do you do you think you know the words? <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well, that's good because Thomas and I sure as hell don't. It's a show about a scary tales from the crypt. Tales from the crypt. Tales from the crypt. Special movie episode. So Thomas is right. We are doing a special movie event this time around, which you know because you you clicked on the name of this episode. But Mary, why are we doing a movie episode in the middle of season two? <laughs> what? I, this is this is Dude, me trying to help. Did she not tell you? You sound genuinely confused. <laughs> well, um, well, because you and I made a list of all films, and we realized that it worked out so that about every six episodes we should do a movie. Is Ooh. that a good enough explanation for you, sir? Wow, I'm really glad that you were able to clear that up for me. Mary, I'm I, sure that I, no I one else it. was confused. Only me. I don't get it. I'm gonna do it. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. I don't. I don't get it. I'm gonna use it. nonsense. So today we're talking about um, the 1992 film Death Becomes Her, and I'm gonna give a quick little brief film synopsis for you. Uh, this movie is about Madeline, who's played by Meryl Streep, and Helen, who's played by Goldie Hawn. Um, who are long-time rivals, uh, who are duke- who are currently duking it out over the trifling but otherwise dull Ernest, who's played by Bruce Willis. In a final bid to outdo each other once and for all, they independently drink eternal youth uh, eternal youth potion um, that, in the end, pr- proves to work a little too effectively. And that's what this movie's about. So, Andrew, when we were making this list and you saw that Death Becomes Her was on it, you insisted on guesting. Why is that? Oh, boy, did I. Because I'm the producer and I get to do what I want. No. Um, <laughs> I'm it's... basically just a person who wanted on being like, boss, boss, boss. It sounds about right. Um, so why did I want to do this? I want to tell you, this is, um, the film Death Becomes Her was a, this is going to sound wild, seminal film from my childhood. Not adolescence. How, not young how, how young of childhood? Oh, I'm talking like the age of around six to seven years old. <laughs> Which, having rewatched this movie now, I have to ask my mother, why? When, you <laughs> what know, were you thinking? When most people uh, were, you know, watching classics like The Lion King. Oh, yeah. Maybe maybe a Muppet movie. Absolutely here or there. a Muppet movie. <laughs> you were like, you were like, you were like drag queen classic death becomes her that's what i'm gonna be obsessed with yeah yeah exactly i and honestly i think i i've tried to rack my brain around it, like why because i mean it's a movie that i mean honestly I'll, I'll spoil my opinion i think it's a fantastic movie i'd recommend it to anybody um at any age at any age obviously really the younger the better 
But um, I don't know what on earth I got out of it as a six-year-old, <laughs> and why I insisted. And just to clarify, this isn't this isn't. Um, <laughs> It's not as though I watched it once and it's stuck in my memory. No, 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 no. There was a period of time where every time my family went to Blockbuster, I insisted that we rent Death Becomes Her. It became like a thing. Again, like like they mentioned, it's it's like The Lion King for some children in the uh, early 90s. No, no, no. This was my thing. Um, my only assumption is that basically, you know, how we, you know, for those of us of a certain age, early 30s, late 20s, um, you probably recall going to a video store and seeing like the cover of uh, Peter Jackson movies and being like, oh, like creepy or like ghoulies or those sort of classic things. This also You're is talking a fairly... expli- explicitly about um, Dead Alive, are Yes, you? Dead Alive explicitly. Yes, yes. Uh, I couldn't remember the title with the director. Got it. Uh, Dead Alive or like ghoulies or uh, all these things. And um, Death Comes are also kind of a creepy cover, the kind of which that would sort of catch your eye as a child and leave an impression. But it's not... One of the movies that my mom thought I couldn't watch. Yeah, so well, it wasn't in the scary section. No, I, 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 I mean, this movie so. is this not is rated. This movie is not yeah. rated R, right? I don't think so. Um, I bet this is a. I, I, I bet this is a PG thirteen. This is like a post Raiders of the Lost Ark PG thirteen mm. movie. Or I'm sorry, post Temple of Doom PG thirteen. You are absolutely right. It is rated PG thirteen, and it's considered a fantasy horror piece, which I am surprised by. I thought it was going to be a comedy horror. Mm, I would have said this, would have said the same thing. I thought it was just going to be comedy fantasy. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be considered a drama. <laughs> I thought horrible fantasy. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, are there three Oscar winners in this? Uh, did it in fact... Did this movie in fact win an Oscar? Sure did. Oh, I didn't know that. For special effects. <laughs> nice. I Absolutely. believe that. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, it should have won Best Picture because it's one of the best things I've ever laid my eyes oh, yeah. on. Oh, yeah. Hands on. <laughs> full report. Full report from, uh, from, from like... The year 1993 to the year 2019 holds up. Here's the thing. If anything, it's gotten better. Would you rather watch this movie than the movie Gladiator? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Would you rather watch this movie than the movie American Beauty? Oh, my God, yes. Would you rather watch this movie than the movie... Would you rather watch this movie than the movie in American Beauty? (laughs) That that pretentious home movie of the little plastic bag and the wind. Certainly. Kind of a tie, but whatever. Would you rather watch this movie than Titanic? I've never seen Titanic, so I can't say for sure. Would you rather watch this movie Wait, than hold watching on, on. La La Land Pause. again? Easily. Oof. There you go. Really, I'm going to put it, any any Oscar Best Picture Award winner. I is going to be me that second. La La Land actually didn't win Best Picture. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, oh, oh, I, would, oh. I would eternal sunshine of the spotless mind this movie <laughs> in over quite a few Oscar winning flicks I've seen. <laughs> Uh, or Bruce Willis movies, frankly. Oh, it's easily my favorite Ooh, Bruce Willis I'm going to say, movie. better than Die Hard. Wait, wait, better than Hudson Hawk? I don't mm. know if I've ever seen Hudson Hawk. Oh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. It's an experience. No, <clears throat> let's just be real. Bruce Willis has, especially at this, at this point in his career, the sort of early 90s Bruce, Bruce Willis, like coming off of Moonlighting and also Die Hard, is like in a weird spot where they're like, Bruce Willis... He can do he, anything. He's, he's like that man is he's hilarious. He still has some of his hair. Oh, just whatever movie he wants to be in, he can just He's do. like Vince Vaughn in 1997. Yes. Like he could still <laughs> do things. They're like is he a serial killer? Is he a leading man? Is he just a weird comedic pervert? Well, this picture is directed by Robert Zemeckis. Have you heard of him? Who's that? No, but seriously. Yeah. Yeah. No, but seriously. What's what's fun about this as opposed to 
what frequently happens with these uh, Tales for the Crypt uh, 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 lists is that most of the names are actually quite recognizable. <laughs> so Robert Zubek is, of course, one of the founding producers and patron saints of Tales from the Crypt. Um, he's doing this. He's coming off of um, Back to the Future and um, is sort of at, 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 well, I guess this is pre-Forest, this is between Back to the Future and Forrest Gump. So <laughs> the golden this years. Is like, yeah, like right in the pocket, <laughs> right in the great, the great, it's great time to be Robert Z. Yeah. Bobby Z, as we <laughs> like to call him. <laughs> Um, this was also Bird written Z. by, um, yeah, <laughs> also written by Martin Donovan, who's a TV writer. Um, this kind of towards the end of his career. He he wrote for all sorts of shows, um, but not anything that my millennial brain uh, necessarily seized on. Um, and then David Cop, who wrote Jurassic Park, the Sam Raimi Spider Man, OG Miss, or the original Tom Cruise Mission Impossible Number One, and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, <laughs> among others. <laughs> so, so, so some highs and some lows. Possible. Right. So it's kind of a mixed bag. But the thing you notice is all of those movies are quite expensive. Mm, yeah. He's he's got fine taste for a writer. Yeah, yeah. I, he probably doesn't work cheap. Mm. And then, um, so we have our cast. We have, of course, Meryl Streep as Madeline Ashton. Meryl Streep, the queen of pretending, who at this point is a two-peat Oscar winner. Um and uh, is, man, I don't know. Has there ever been a time when Meryl Streep was not, you know, on those lists of the 10 greatest American working actresses in the world? I mean, probably, but she's definitely on them now. Yeah. At right. this time. She, yeah. Right, right. And also now at this time in real time. So, yes. you know, right. So there we go. Um, I would also like to play a little game with you guys. I have written down, but since this, since this, uh, movie is obsessed with age and aging i'd like to talk about some principles in this i want you to guess how old people are and who is older than who all right um okay so meryl street okay just keep this in mind we're talking about it. um we also have bruce willis as dr ernest menville um he is of course the king of receding hairlines um <laughs> the older i get the more <laughs> the more i'm like no his hair looks great <laughs> As, as as my hairline starts to move in a in a Bruce Willis direction, I uh, I, I I sort of feel for the man. Um, at this point, he also is sort of I think kind of at the peak of his powers. Uh, this is post Die Hard one and two, um, Hudson Hawk, Last Boy Scout, and of course his comedic turn in Moonlighting. Um, and then Goldie Hawn uh, plays Helen Sharp. Um, she's of course Wyatt Russell's mom and didn't really do much aside from that. Um, but seriously, she also has won an Oscar at this point. Um, um, the last, the last member of our, of our age quiz here is Isabella Rossellini as Liesel von Roman. Do you know anything about this woman, Mary or Andrew? Just off the top is, of your head. So Isabella you Rossellini? Isabella yeah, Rossellini? Yeah. Many things. Yeah, yeah. Endless things. So, uh, daughter of Roberto Rossellini, a famous right. Italian a filmmaker. Uh, and her mom is, of course, Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. Yep. Married to David. Or no, not married, but with David Lynch for many, many years. Blue right, Velvet yep. fame. Engaged for the years. oldest yep. uh, Revlon cover model. I know, actually mm-hmm. know a lot about Isabella Rossellini, apparently. That might not be true anymore, but maybe uh, at the time at the that time she was, was the, signed, the she was the oldest. oldest uh, cover model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, she did an amazing art piece recently that toured around which is a film of her pretending to be different animals and having sex with other animals that are puppets well made out of like paper too yeah. right yeah mm-hmm. that's great yeah 
So obviously, like, what are these people where you like read about her and you're just like, oh yeah, destined for greatness? Mm-hmm. And she also was in a um, art house movie called the saddest, like the saddest song in the world, where she plays a um, a woman who has both her legs amputated and replaced with giant glass beer steins. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> weird. That's awesome. Did you know that she is in she's in uh, in the latter in a latter season episode of Tales from the Crypt that was of course directed by uh, by by Zemeckis? They must oh. be friends. No, I did not know yeah. that, and I am excited about that now. Mm. Yeah, so she's coming up. And uh, the only other thing that I wrote down that seemed funny and relevant to this time period is that she was in Madonna's sex book too. I'm sure. Nice. So okay, so we have so we have our four principal leads, right? We got Meryl Streep, we got Bruce Willis, we got Goldie Hawn, and we have Isabella Rossellini. Who do you think is the youngest of these people? Isabella and, Rossellini. Okay, and how old do you think she is? I think is? she's 40 years old. Okay. I think it's Bruce Willis. Okay, and how oh, old do you right. think he is? Oh, that's right. He's also in this list. Yeah. yeah he's the youngest. Yeah, yeah, I think he's... Okay, so how old do you think he is? 35. 37. Yeah, he's, he, he is, is correct. He's, in fact, 37 years old. Who do you, you think dog. is the oldest? Goldie Hawn. Who's the oldest? Okay, and how old do you think she is? <laughs> 47. Yeah. Are you are you cheating? No, I already looked all this up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. I was. Just, she actually is forty six when it's coming out, but that's only because it's the whole like, is it nineteen ninety one or nineteen ninety two? Sure, sure, but, sure, um, sure, sure, sure. But yeah, so I, I thought I thought it was funny that Meryl Streep, who's who they're like, like I don't know, I think that the way that so Meryl Streep is forty three at the time this is made. Bruce Willis is a is a spry thirty seven years old, and then Isabella Rossellini is thirty nine, which I think is funny because of the joke where they say, "How old do you think I am?" And 30. Meryl Streep says she's thirty eight. She gives her like the super dirty look. Well, I think, and it, but probably when it was shot, she was thirty eight. Yeah, it could have been. Could have been. You know, I think that it's all jokes. And it, then, it's still, it's still, it's still funny. I mean, it's, it's like the, the yeah. joke is still the joke. Yeah, and I think remember when the two women are whispering at the party and they say, "How old is she?" Is she? And then Madeline. Leans for like talking about uh, Helen and Madeline says she's 50 and they're like, ah! I think that's right, also right. a joke about yeah. the fact that she is almost 50 in this movie. Well, yeah, sort of. I mean, you get the sense. I, I get the sense that these women are supposed to be sort of 50 and Bruce and Ernest Mel- Menville, I think, sort of explicitly is supposed to be 50. Yeah, they, ooh, yeah, um, they call that at the end. Yeah, at the end. Yeah, right. Say you know, unless, unless unless we are to believe that he like lays low for a couple of years or something. But anyway, just to say, I think it's I think it's I, I think everybody is. Maybe not everybody, not Isabella Rossellini, but um, I feel like everybody is sort of younger than I expect them to be for them be for this being something where it's like, oh, over the hill, gotta. gotta well, and I, th- I was mostly tricked because I thought, first of all, the fact that Goldie Hawn looks the way she does and she's um, 47 at this time is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So all these people, and and even Isabella Rossellini, thirty nine, forty years old. Like, although I believe she had a body double for a lot of this because she's basically for the, for the nude scene. She's yes. basically hmm. nude for most of her this film. Well, but but, I, but I'm but I'm pretty sure most of the the, the stuff where like she's wearing that ju- just a necklace that you know, yeah I think she's wearing like breath. plastic boobs there. Yeah, too. I, mm-hmm. I assume that's actually her body. I don't think that yeah no no Zemeckis no is uh, no. sawing her head off. For no, all, and I don't think she's shots. yeah no way. But she um. But, like, that's also incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think that part of this is... I actually think it makes perfect sense that they're this old. Because they're old enough to be kind of in on the joke, as it were, you know? But they're not so old that they can't be they can't be glamorized into looking very young. So yeah, when, yeah, I guess. You know, so yeah, when, no, I, I, when you see Meryl Streep laying in bed with, like, all those, like, weird, like... <laughs> 
things taping up her skin, cackling. Um, you buy it, and then also when you see her, like when you see her after she's been rejuvenated, you also buy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I, I like. I understand the reasoning behind it. It's just like I don't know. It, on some level, it seems a little stolen valor too, or or maybe it's just real bleak. <laughs> I mean. I think it is pretty bleak. Goldie yeah. Hawn, I mean, Goldie Hawn's almost those 50 years old in this thing. Yeah. Like, you know, how many other times will she go on to play romantic leads after this? Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, anyway, um, so there are there are other people in this movie, of course, um, uh, in contrast to many Tales from the Crypt episodes, there actually are quite a few <laughs> extras and stuff. Um, what's funny is how many of these people show up in Tales from the Crypt later. Um, Adam Stork, the guy who plays Dakota Williams, uh, Meryl Streep's or Madeline Ashton's uh, young, young boyfriend. He'll show up in a 1994 episode of Tales from the Crypt. No connection with Zemeckis at that point. Um, and then Anna Jones, the um, woman who plays the uh, a- the sort of um, aesthetician at the uh, clinic or whatever. The, uh, the, the woman who um, the woman with the phony French accent who is like telling Meryl Streep that she can't get plasmapheresis again or whatever. Um, she'll show up later in a second season episode of Tales from Crypt. So we'll see her again kind of soonish. Um, and then, of course, um, Vivian Adams, who is a character who um, uh, um, compliments Dr. Ernest Menville on the good job he did on her dead aunt, <laughs> is, of course, played by Mary Ellen Trainer, who is, of course... Um, the wife in uh, and all through the house and is, of course, Robert Zemeckis' wife at this time. And William Frankfather, the who is the um, who plays the uh, I guess like I don't really know who he is. Presumably he maybe is like the mortician when they have the dead Brazilian singer um, and says things about like, you know how much I hate last minute. He will turn up in uh, Tales from the Crypt as well and another episode this season. So hmm. um, so it's it just if anything, I, I think I don't. Uh, I don't know. I don't so know if this these... says that Zemeckis is loyal to his bit players, or if this just shows like how how, how wide ranging Tales from the Crypt's pool of talent is in terms of just like people who are in movies. Well, this is going to come out after the current season we are in, right? After two, right. Uh, yeah, season two, right. this comes. So out, yeah, all this these... movie came out in ninety two. Something we shot in like ninety one. So yeah. So all of these people are recent Tales from the Crypt alums. Well, not all of them, though. Like Dakota Williams. Oh, his, she will his, be. His, okay. Or he, he, or he will be Adam Stark, and then, yeah, yeah. So it's it's sort of it's just kind of seems a little bit all over the place. I don't think it it doesn't seem systemic. I don't, you don't. I don't, I don't get the sense that Zemeckis was like, yeah, just bring it all with the TFTC people. <laughs> Let's do I it. Mean, maybe it like maybe it's like a back scratching thing. Like you were in this, and then like you want to be in Taylor's group. They're like, sure, you're already in the family. There's only one other person I want to talk about. There is an uncredited genius performance in this. The ER doctor, um, the guy who uh, cracks uh, Meryl Streep's wrist and throws away a stethoscope and drinks the booze and pops the nitro and then later has a heart attack, mm-hmm. is played by Sidney Pollack, the director of Out of Africa, which he directed with Meryl Streep. And this was their, this was like their little reunion. Um, he is the third person in this movie to have won an Oscar. Um, <laughs> so it, it's cool, cool that he's in this, too. And I, I sort of love that scene anyway, so... Uh, he deserves, I think I mean, he did a great job. He deserves everything he gets. You're not right. He's, 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 yeah. He deserved to die. <laughs> no, no, no. no. It's like, he, <laughs> you won an Oscar. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did a brief peruse of uh, Goldie Hawn's uh, work after this. Sure. 
And she did take a little, what appears to be a little bit of break, but she goes from doing this to then, like, fully going into First Wives Club territory. Uh-huh. Yeah. And right. then in everything else, she's playing a mom. Like, the out of she's in the out-of-towners, where she's, sure. like, a mom, married to, to uh, Steve Martin. Um, town and Country mom, the Banger sisters, Snatched, <laughs> all those things. And it might just be that she has, like, enough money that she doesn't need to be working as much as she used to. I, I certainly hope so, you know? Sure. Um, but I, I definitely think that this is like a crossing point from her where she's not she's not going to be, you know, she's right. not going to be the the leading lady unless she is the leading lady happens to be like an older mom. Mm-hmm. A role that would go to Meryl Streep kind of is that what you sound like? Yeah. Some she's to think not about. having Meryl Streep's career. Oh, yeah. And also, you know, Fabio's in this movie, too. Did So so I knew that Fabio's in it. He's one of Liesel's bodyguards. Right. And I don't think he's ever fully in focus. I I, I can't see him. him. Yeah, I, I think there's him. a scene towards the kind of t- right towards the end when um, she says Tom Dick when and Bruce Harry. Willis is trying to give him the right, trying to give him the potion and stuff. And um, there's there's a guy with sort of Fabio hair and sort of a Fabio torso who's not fully in focus, kind of over behind her. And I think that actually is Fabio. So I think this is you know you sort of a, a, who knows who knows if there's footage of him on the cutting room floor or what but he's sort of technically in this movie so the we've we've talked about this before but this is an unofficial tales from the crypt movie because it was originally written to be an episode of tales from the crypt um or at least a movie version of tales from the crypt it was originally optioned for this but the plan for it fell through and it started kind of floating around and had to be rewritten as a uh, it was rewritten as a as a feature film so a movie that would come out in theaters um, and eventually obviously it was made and now we consider it an unofficial uh, Tales from the Crypt film so I wanted to talk about initially do you guys think that this movie feels like like something from the crypt what? Literally everything about this feels like a Tales from the Crypt episode. <laughs> this is the most Tales from the... This is more of a Tales from the Crypt movie than I would say even um, Demon Knight was. I 100% agree. Yeah. 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 Maybe not as much as Bordello of Blood will feel like. God, but. no. Uh, <laughs> having watched Bordello of Blood kind of recently... <laughs> um, more Certainly more so than that weird kind of racist feeling Rossifarian one with Tim Curry. <laughs> I think that's oh, technically yeah. also unofficial, but oh, yes. Oh, nice. Uh, but it's, it's more official. Yeah. In the, in the, in the canon of this. <laughs> but no, everything about, like, this, the, from the from the way the gags are, basically this is like if you took a Tales from Crypt episode and gave it uh, an Oscar award-winning special effects budget, basically. Okay. And, like, so. and like sort of a, a, a sort of a, 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 a promote, like, an upgrade the class of actor that you have in it by, like, a notch or two. Yeah, but still there's, like, it's still peppered with, like, Surprise! Not surprise. Sort of uh, a few periodic necrophiliac jokes. Um, the, one of the main characters is literally an undertaker. You see corpses as jokes. You know, it's 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 pretty classic. There's not there's not strictly speaking any traditional gold digging, but if you consider the idea of youth as a form of currency, I would argue that perhaps there indeed is. Oh, actually, no, that's not true because uh, Ma- Madeline is living off of Ernest's money because he talks about the fact that like she hasn't worked in a long time and. Yeah. He yeah, he, she's after his money. Literally, there's gold digging in this movie too. Yeah, yeah, didn't I, see it at I, first. I agree. Yeah, yeah, because the other thing I thought like the sets are beautiful, but kind of stagey and empty. 
Yeah. Um, like, you know, it's sort of a little bit bare and undressed. Gives it kind of TV-ish feel. Um, it, it, it has this nebulous, I feel, sort of retro feel. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, and, and I think that, that that sort of carries through with the story. It's also, I think, what you're getting at, Andrew. Tales of the Crypt is, all, is generally weirdly low stakes. Mm-hmm. Like, people aren't trying to, like, summon Cthulhu to eat the world, generally. <laughs> but they are trying to, like, use magic to, like, get a girlfriend <laughs> yeah. or and then you, you know i like like or, or I keep their wife's more, corpse beautiful you know right, little yeah, things exactly. like that no no exactly it's it's it's, it's all sort of fun it's, it's it's funny very limited in scope and imagination on on the part of the people who have access you know right mm-hmm. i'm gonna i'm gonna have a cat's lives but the best thing i can come up with being monetizing that is to be a carnival sideshow act um there's there it also has cartoony violence mm-hmm. in spades um which with, you know. with spades, with garden spades, yeah, with actual spades, <laughs> yes, and shotguns. But this thing also just feels like a super, like like a really high budget, very polished B movie mm-hmm. with really good with visual effects that I think hold, really hold up surprisingly um, well. Surprisingly well, yeah. yeah. The the only thing that I would say is that to me, and I'm interested in getting your thoughts, the twist and the punishment feel a little off. Um, uh, only because it, like, I don't know. I, we we could get into this um, in, in in when we talk about what what we think the moral is. But I think that this is a little bit less um, straightforward and didactic, maybe, than a lot of Tales from the Crypt episodes are. It, it might just be they have more time. But also, I sort of feel like when they wrote this, I don't know that they they were supposed to, or the. I don't know. I, I don't think that the moral comes through super. They're not beating you over the head with it like like they usually are in Tales from the Crypt. Mm, uh, I don't know if I. I think I might disagree with that slightly. I mean, I think that it's more. We we talked about this a little bit with like Demon Knights. Truly, I felt like didn't have a moral. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like not really. There are some, no. but it's not. It's not. Right. That's right. not central to its plot. I think that this is. This at least has like, is telling is showing you people living their life wrong and then them having a downfall right. based on that. There's lots of contrapasso and things like that. I mean, yes, sort of, sort of, yeah. But, um, but I mean, like, the reason it feels like Tales from the Crypt is because you have a really campy script, which generally wouldn't be made into a good movie mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. And then you have very gruesome special effects that are never gory, yeah. truly, um, they, they they kind of like broach broad comedy body humor. It does kind of push like when 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 necks break. The first time she falls down the stairs and her neck snaps, that is a bit hard she to watch. Falls down the steps for about five minutes. Yeah, yeah. And then that yeah, that yeah. whole scene is actually quite frightening. And it's oh, and then she stands she's, up. She's like, "You tried yeah, to yeah, kill when, me, when, Ernest." It, it legitimately gave me. Chills. I like what she calls him yeah. wife pusher. Wife yeah, pusher. Yeah, when he's, yeah. when um, he's when he's talking on the phone and you kind of see when you, and oh, you yeah. see the stand up and you see yeah before before it's obviously a special effect mm-hmm. um, and it just kind of is more of like one of those things where you know they would hire a, they would hire a professional dancer to like kind of portray this motion and it's a little bit out of focus is is terrifying mm-hmm. like in a good way. But it's never bloody. Like yeah. even when right. you, even when they shoot even when they shoot uh, Helen she falls into water which yeah. kind of cleans up some of that for you her hole is never right. dripping mm-hmm. it's pretty dry right. it's yeah. pretty it, it's just cartoony enough that it's not really like horror it's like it's it's gruesome but it's not gory it is yeah. very much yeah. a cartoon yeah 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 
Um, but I, I mean, the the what I I'm very glad that this was made into this movie um, because I feel like it could have been sort of like forgettable. Mm-hmm. Certainly, as an episode, it feels a little too long. It would feel like the story is it wouldn't support like a twenty minute. Um, oh yeah, piece it, would be a need, lot. You need room to breathe for this. Yeah. I think. And mm-hmm. it's unbelievably fun to watch world-class actors attack this kind of... Just, yeah. All this kind of, of script. All three of them just, like, just, just devouring the scenery in a beautiful way. Yeah. I feel like, no, I, I honestly, what, what stands out to me about this and why I think I still... Why I genuinely love this movie, watching it now as an adult, not just as a child, is that, um, yeah, to your point, it could, it could fall so flat. I think... Um, Oh, digging this, we we'll talk about the moral of the story a bit, but I think it is it is more complex than you expect it to be in interesting ways. And I think what what stands out for me and why it is actually why it succeeds, I think, both as sort of extended tales from the crit episode and a full length uh, horror comedy fantasy feature, is that um, it, it it really leans into a very nuanced body horror angle, like throughout the entire story. The aging is not, you know, I think obviously there's the level, on the surface level, aging is presented as sort of like a weakness of, of, the, of, a, of like a, the, uh, something a, a woman has to like bear as a burden. But it pushes further than that. It really makes the idea first and foremost of aging as sort of a horrifying body. Like they talk about it as like decaying and like you're watching your body get older and softer and change. And it is kind of horrifying when you frame it in those words. And then it goes on to show the much greater body horror of not aging and becoming this sort of fragile little little egg. Basically, you have to like mind everything that you do because if you break your body, it's broken forever. You know, I think one of the one of the best quotes that really stuck out for me was um, when Liesel says, uh, "You and your body are going to be together a long time." So it creates a sort of interesting like separation of like your identity and your body. Uh, in a way that makes your body the sort of other and is interestingly complex. Like that's an interestingly, that's a very nuanced angle to approach what could be, again, a very flat sort of frankly misogynist uh, premise. And I was really impressed with it, I think. so. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I, I feel like the the reliance on special effects makes it also feel kind of Tales from the Cryptian, Mm -hmm. right? Like, to tell a more nuanced story, but also, like, get a lot of juicy scenes of, like, weird broken necks and things like that and, like, giant shotgun holes. Um, How many ways can you break Meryl Streep's neck? Yeah, and then, like, and when she, like, pulls her neck up and then it, like, stretches like a rubber band and then settles back in. Like, all of that feels very Tales from the Cryptian. And we um, have to... Like, this was a huge special effects movie and changed the way a lot of um, early uh, digital advancements in special effects were done. This was was an industrial light magic joint, wasn't it? Yes. And so it was one of the first times they had done things where they were working with skin textures. Hmm. Like all those all those scenes where she's like, yeah, her neck is like a rubber band or she's like all crunched down in her Hmm. neck. It was like kind of early testing grounds for this. And it would eventually um, lead to the technology and uh, uh, techniques they used for Jurassic Park. Interesting. Another Jurassic Park connection. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of interesting. And, Very interesting. And, yeah. Right. And and Forrest Gump, lest we forget. Unfortunately. <laughs> no, but really though, like that, that. Do you remember? Do you remember what a big deal that handshake was supposed oh, to be? Oh yeah. <laughs> supposed to have been at the time. Yeah. Mm. The um. Did you did you read the thing, Mary, about how um when they uh broke when um 
when they break Meryl Streep's neck. Originally, they had made an animatronic head that was going to be backwards, but it looked wrong, so they ended up having to use digital effects. Can you imagine a terrifying, <laughs> creepy animatronic Meryl oh, Streep God. head? What's funny is... Oh. If that exists, do you think that Meryl Streep is like, I must take it home with me. <laughs> it must come home with me. I can't trust that someone else will own this. Uh, I mean, that's fair. Um, the, I actually have a very weirdly vivid memory of watching like a like a little bit on a news show when I was a kid that talked about the special effects and uh, showed uh, showed the the scene where Meryl Streep's or um, Madeline's head is on backwards. Of course, Meryl Streep had to wear a uh, like a green screen mask basically and walk mm-hmm. around backwards that's how they did it and apparently that's the one day that her mother was able to come to the, the screening <laughs> and she commented to Robert Mex like oh I come here to see my daughter and you, you make her walk around with a bag over her head what is this about <laughs> which is really hilarious <laughs> hilarious concept uh, Meryl Streep is really proud of this 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 piece she likes this movie um, but she does not she did not like making it because of the special effects oh I believe yeah, that she said they were really, one and done for her it was yeah. really really tedious work um, so especially for her, I bet it was less. I mean, I think that uh, Helen does less, uh, has like more horrifying things happen to her. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of that stuff was like stunt doubles. Yeah. Like she has three mm-hmm. stunt doubles. Yeah. So, so yeah. like like getting blown into that fountain and things like that. That probably wasn't her. Yeah. But, and, and that stuff probably isn't the tedious parts. The tedious parts are where like, oh no, we're not lined up right. Yeah, so the yeah. green screen, so it looks it looks off. We got to shoot it again, and you got to stand three inches this way. You, yeah, you know, it's probably mm-hmm. more like that kind of. That's the stuff that would drive you crazy. Not like having a stunt man on some sort of like one of those pole rigs and getting blasted into the fountain. That's probably fun. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Is uh, this comparatively speaking? This was not a critical darling when it came out, though. Despite all that, it did win a special. It did win an Oscar for its special effects, which does make sense. But um, Siskel and Ebert both gave this film a thumbs down, and they said that they liked the great special effects, but said it lacked any real character death depth. And that's <laughs> why character. Well, actually, not a lot of character death. <laughs> depth but um, I think sadly I think they didn't like it because, because it is a Tales from the Crypt piece uh, or yeah, I don't probably, think that they yeah, like probably. the emblematic yeah. characters yeah. <laughs> yeah I came into a movie called Death's Becomer expecting to have a very intri- a very intricate and deep uh, meditation on be- on aging and, and the <laughs> beauty standards of Hollywood but instead <laughs> people were getting shot holes were getting shot in people and they were like spray painting corpses <laughs> bondoing chins yeah mm. is bondo a type of spray paint no it's like a it's like a compound you use to fill out cracks and stuff yeah like ga- gap filler yeah so so are we to understand so I, I I don't know if I'm getting ahead of here but are they just really careless with their bodies because do their if the, I get it that they have this immortality and their body is not supposed to age, but then they die. So they're stuck in a dead body, but the dead body can't really rot. Right. Because Mm -hmm. it's around for like a hundred or 50 years or whatever, you know, in the course of the movie. Why do they look like shit? I guess that they, I guess it does raise a question like is, is Liesl dead? No, or rather, she's, is well, Andy Warhol? Only, she's only, only seventy-one. She's only seventy-one. Yeah. yeah so, right, like, so, 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 in the act of dying, is what caused their bodies to go to hell? Right. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I think so. I mean, like, I think it's like if you didn't, if if there were no trauma, if you didn't, if your heart right. weren't ca- made to stop beating, 
you could live forever. Mm-hmm. And I think all those people are still supposed to be alive. Yeah. Right. I think that they have a special, like, it makes it more interesting if they are the, the they are the two odd women out. Yeah. In that room yeah. full of immortals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think I mean, that that's I'm just what's saying, going like, so, on. Yeah, because that is a little bit, it's not, I'm not, it's not exactly inconsistent or whatever, but it is sort of a weird wrinkle that they don't really discuss. The other thing is that we talk about it like, oh my gosh, you know, they're immortal. Oh, oh no, now that they're now that they've died, what a terrible thing. But you know, no no human being could survive like half the things that happened to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like like, oh right, you're immortal, but the only thing is you can't have shovel fights with each other. <laughs> <laughs> no shotguns to the abdomen, please. Right, right. If you get shot here's the here's the bummer thing about be about, about the the eternal youth serum. If somebody shoots you in the gut, you might survive. <laughs> I think uh, at a very, very high level, I think that this is a morality tale about um what what people are really made of hmm. that's what the first song that madeline sings at the beginning is about mm-hmm. and that's where we end in the church scene and i think it is a a warning about deciding that your own vanity is going to define who you're going to be and is ultimately their undoing mm-hmm. i i would almost argue that it's even simpler it, I, well i i took it as a uh, I, to some degree, I, I agree with your point, but I think on, I would also argue that the the this isn't, in many respects, just a, simply a tale about the dangers of obsession. You know, I think um, worth noting. I think it's it's easy to read this as sort of a vanity tale because beauty and uh, youth are so prominent in it. But let's keep in mind the only person whose motivations are driven explicitly by the desire to be young and beautiful are Madeline's Uh, because Helen isn't driven to be young and beautiful. She's driven to hurt Madeline and uses youth and beauty as a means to an end. Like she goes through this process with Liesl, not, I mean like not because she necessarily wants to be beautiful Broadly speaking, she wants to be more beautiful as a way to really, to, really to stick, stick it, to, it Madeline. To, to Madeline and eventually still back, steal back Ernest for some reason and kill Madeline. <laughs> it's not. And then then I think that's that's worth noting and that the, the obsession is not it, it, it reads easily as sort of a vanity and a beauty thing. But actually, it's it's more broad than that, I think, and kind of more interesting, I think, because of that breath. I, I mean, know. yeah, but like. So what are we to make then at the end when they are getting along? Why are they still tormented? Well, because they are each other's obsession to some degree. And this is like the ultimate comeuppance, right? This is this is where this is what you get. Like, you know, they kind of gotten exactly what they wanted in a but weird roundabout the, way. But isn't the obsession isn't the obsession part that they want to hurt each other and now they have to live their lives together taking care of each other? Shouldn't that have been the end it if it w- isn't if it is a tale about just obsession it, it's a tale rather about the fact that both of them both of them got exactly what they wanted they madeline was obsessed with being young and beautiful she got it helen wanted to kill madeline she got it and they got what they wanted what's there t- it's about finding meaning after fulfilling it's like it's the dog who catches the car right like you you do it and you're like oh well what's to be done now and ultimately all they had were each was each other and that's kind of fun i guess yeah but also dark well i think that this this um so i i also enjoyed the movie like spoilers and everything um but i do think that structurally this movie does have kind of some maybe some issues or at least like philosophically what the movie has to say because i think it's interesting that um yeah these 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 women are sort of pitted pitted against them each other maybe 
partially for societal reasons, partially for personal reasons, they sort of reconcile themselves. They establish sort of sisterhood and decide they will be buddies. And the story then immediately is like, yeah, well, that's not very interesting. Let's let's pivot to Ernest, the most boring uh, human drywall in the world. And we're going to make the story about him. Yeah. And then he is allowed to escape and live a fulfilling rich life, which is funny since, you know, he is definitely straight up a man who murdered his wife. Um, yeah. But 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 let, let's never even think about that. Um, and, and and so then we're kind of left with so like, you know, on, on a surface level. You know, this is this is one of these like, careful what you wish for, fountain of youth, kind of, you know, monkey's paw, which is funny because I really don't I don't really think that is actually borne out here. We also get the the preacher who is or the uh, the, you know, the minister, whatever the eulogist mm-hmm. who's, uh, you know, right. The, the 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 perfect embodiment of the patriarchy basically informing these uh, decaying corpse ladies in the back of the church that uh, that uh, earnest life has. You know, has meaning and life begins at 50. He has fathered six children. What's funny is those are things that only a man can do mm-hmm. um, at 50 or beyond 50. And uh, that he lives on in, uh, you know, in his family and in his the things he's established, his AA chapter, his center for like family counseling and women's studies. Oh, yeah. That, that last bit was a bit uh Right, right, and then also he has eternal youth in the form of his children. So yeah. then, like you kind, of, so you kind of get a little bit of a like, you know, right? Just being a normal human and not not wanting to be a weird, a weird, deathless zombie is uh, is is you know is is his own reward and virtue. So I feel like it. it I feel like they're sort of kind of they're trying to. The, I, I, you can, I know that there were multiple endings shot and that they were trying to figure out how they wanted to end this movie, and I feel like you kind of tell that because they're. They're just kind of they've sort of thrown stuff on the wall and been like, well, what feels right here at mm-hmm. the end? Yeah, and, and I think that just muddles that, that muddles the moral because it's kind of like, when do you when do you decide that the when, when has the movie stated its thesis? Yeah, I mean, I think I also struggled with Ernest being able to allow to have a happy ending at the end. I think it's really weird. Um I do wonder, and 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 absolutely, like all the things, like there's a lot to unpack about. The fact that the, the, you have this 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 preacher, um, you know, moralizing to these women that life can start at fifty when clearly that's not really an option for them, right? Mm-hmm. Right. right. In their given careers, they cannot. They you know they can't really start to live at fifty. They can't yeah. start having children at fifty. Um, mm-hmm. So, but at the same point, at the same time, I kind of wonder about like his fulfilling his fulfilling life when you look at the church like why isn't that church all the way full yeah i mean right like yeah i can't tell if it's supposed to be ironic but then also like there's like international dignitaries there well i think that those are international people because he adopts a bunch of kids overseas Right, right right no but i'm just saying but like i think we're i feel like they're playing it straight i think i don't know if they are though so like i feel like I almost kind of wonder if it's a little bit of a feudal message at the end. Hmm. So you have these two people who absolutely chose immortality, mm-hmm. right? Who are sitting, listening to this guy be like, and he will live on among his children and all of the good works that he did. And then you kind of have the two immortals heckling that. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. they get the final say, right? He, he almost, the priest, the priest almost addresses them directly with this, mm-hmm. with this, this 
tail to silence morality. Like, aren't they immortal? You know, isn't this truly the, the definition of mortality? And they both sneer at that idea. Yeah. So, but, but, but I, then I they feel, go outside and break into a million pieces. Well, I so. feel like we're supposed to believe that Helen and Madeline deserve their grisly fate, but I think we're right. also supposed to give Ernest a big old eye roll at the end. Yeah. Like it doesn't it doesn't necessarily I don't know if anyone chose more like definitely Ernest chose more correctly because he's not like, you know, rotting actively. But, well, he was technically. <laughs> but <laughs> why? Cuz he's dead. Ernest? Well, it's, it's a bad oh, joke, oh, yeah, oh, cuz oh, he's a corpse. <laughs> yeah, currently. Yes. Yeah. But I think that I don't think that we're supposed to necessarily think that Ernest is the bee's knees at the end of this movie. No, Ernest is a wife pusher. He's a wife pusher. Yeah. <laughs> Flaccid. <laughs> I just kind of wonder if it's a uh, path least, like I took the path least chosen, less chosen, and it made all the difference kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Ernest ends up being this sort of like weirdly kind of hyper-masculine figure in the end and in his eulogy. Like, he's an outdoorsman. And, uh, you know, he fathers a bunch of children even into old age. And he's he this sort of grand... compared to being like a biblical patriarch. Yeah, he's this grand paternal figure. Which is, I mean, like, also, again, like, clearly he married someone who was much younger than him. That's that's implicit in the fact that she was able to have five children, um, okay. as opposed to Madeline or uh, or uh, Helen. Um, and it's an interesting it's an interesting take because it does feel a little bit dis, uh, sort of incongruous with the rest of the story, I would argue. And I think you're not supposed to take it. I, I have to believe that it's not meant. I don't have to. I choose to believe that it's not intended to necessarily... Um, sanctify Ernest to make him great but at the same time like what else is it doing I don't know I mean, well I think it might be expanding on the limited options that these women have versus the, the unlimited options he has like yeah. we do know throughout this entire story that Ernest is pathetic yeah and not great like in mm-hmm. in the first part of it it's absolutely um, he's absolutely played as sort of like can you believe that these two women are fighting over this guy yeah like that's like the joke is supposed to be that he is such a nothing that the only reason he has any value is because one of these women wants him and then the other that means the other one will have to want him as well Mm -hmm. Um, but I think there's also some slight some slight uh slight fun stuff in there where it points out how like spoiled and vain he also is yeah like that's in particularly the moment where um it's after uh it's after he's taken madeline to the hospital for the first time and the doctor's like this woman is dead and it does not make sense and i'm about to have a heart attack and (laughs) um and he comes back to her and he's like no 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 I understand it now. You're a symbol. You're a sign. You're a burning bush. And he makes the trauma that she has undergone Which from was, his hands. Yes. yes. And also, like, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. A lot of trauma. About God coming down and pointing out that he is special, that he is the special one. Um, yeah. So I think he's every bit as bad as either of the two women. Absolutely. Right. Just you know, I, in I, his quest to be something extraordinary. On some level, no, like, I, they all kind of become the thing that they want to be, right? Like, he clearly wants to be this bigger-than-life uh, man. And at the end of the day, none of it really works out. 
quite. And he, and he has a sparsely attended funeral. Exactly. Well, except, except that at the end, maybe he does. I don't know. I just feel like they, they give basically from the moment. So I love that. I, so, yes, uh, he is like the definition of like the mediocre white man. And he has this weird masculine rage and he's an alcoholic and everything. And he gives, I love how bad all of the like profound speeches he tries to give are <laughs> like even that, like the burning bush, probably the closest thing he comes to profundity. But like, even then you're just kind of like, okay. And then he realizes that there's two undead women and that he's not special. And he's kind of like, well, I got to get out of here. It's another okay. miracle. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then he, and when he, um, the speech he gives them before they like conk him on the head to try and make him be immortal so he can sort of service them and you know keep them keep them looking good with his spray paint forever um it's something along the lines of something along the lines of like i i don't know why i didn't leave six or eight or ten which if you like follow the timeline means like he should have left before he ever even got involved with madeline which is funny and <laughs> stupid um but the, basically he's like people who keep their words are stupid and i just figured something out it was till death do us part and you died and also i drink too much but like it's like it's 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 punched up as if he's going to like say something really smart. And it's just like dumb, obvious things. Hmm. And then when he is offered eternal life by Liesl, he also rejects it in the most hilariously, I think stupid way where he's like, <laughs> what if I get bored? What if, what if I get shot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have eternal life. What if I get bored? Who oh, am I going to hang out with? It's now time for my ambush question. Oh, <laughs> do you think based on that, do you think that there is a sneaky vampire movie with moralities about souls tucked in here? And is that why Ernest is given a happy ending? Do you think hmm. that Liesl and her and her goons, who I think are also immortal, mm -hmm. represent like a vampire clan and they're asking Ernest to sell his soul? And the reason that he is allowed to have a church funeral at the end is because he rejects selling his soul? I did wonder what was Liesl's in game in this. I mean, money seems to be the obvious simple uh, motivation, but like clearly the there's more to it. Sordid topic of coin. Yeah, like clearly she is like a supernatural creature who's who's trying to get people immortality for her own motivations, which might be just to have a bunch of cool people around. But it seems like there's something else sinister. And again, like to your point, I think yeah, the the guards do seem immortal, but they all seem like immortal slaves to her. Like they're not. Uh, I mean, it's not a terrible job. They're no, basically no, no. just like putting her in uh, bathrobes and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and getting in the way of handy. <laughs> <laughs> and and get, not giving not giving her uh, her guest room for crap's sake. Uh, basically, <laughs> Isabella Rossellini is the opposite of Bruce Willis in that she can say anything and it can sound profound and great <laughs> in this movie. Well, it's, it's, it's because it's because Bruce Willis throughout here, like he he looks the most dead of anybody in the cast. Like <laughs> they do an awesome job with his makeup. He just looks like hell constantly. Like he looks like he's dead for most of the movie. Um, and she and uh, Isabella Rossellini and Liesl has she has like this awesome like flapper Egyptian witch energy. <laughs> And she's so into him taking the, the potion. Too. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's right, so right. into everyone taking the potion. And it's all a no, but, blood but, ritual, right? She has yeah. to like poke them. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like she's hmm. way more into Bruce. I'm with Andrew. I think she's way more into Bruce Willis. Like, you get the weird, like, the lightning is cracking behind her. You know, kind of a drink this potion and become who you were always meant to be. Kind of, you know. Well, it's weird because, like, you know, he's the only person she really needs to m truly motivate. Who doesn't bring his yeah. own motivations to the situation. So yeah. I don't know what that means, but um, 
this feel this again feel, it, it's a little bit odd it's it's fine that it's not explained i guess but yeah it, it does make it where we're supposed to be like oh no don't take the potion bruce but then i'm also like well but why not like, yeah the, the only the only bad things that happen are if you yourself are a bad person and we're like cruising to be murdered <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think that there is something about this. I think that there is there is backdoor vampire mythology brought in here where becoming an immortal is is rejecting God's God's face. And that's why we have to end in a church. Hmm. And that's why they have to sit at the very back of said church. And he is a biblical patriarch. Yes. And then you've got God creating Adam above. And I do Mm -hmm. feel like there's a mention. I, I, I couldn't quite place it but i feel like liesel does imply a certain like she is sort of god she, she simply says oh thank god or something like that she says oh you're welcome it's not quite that dumb it was very it was subtle such subtle to the degree that i didn't quite pick it up even for like for the actual quote but um there was implications of like um uh, egomania is not the right word, but like sort of a, a, a bolstered sense of self in the face of the divine. Let's say. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see. I kind of, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you. I don't know about like vampires, but I know what you're saying. Like not yeah, literal yeah. vampires, but like soul vampires or something. Let's well, all deal with vampires. Cer- okay. Certainly, yeah. I would say this: for it to have the necessary third act. Ernest was a hero all along kind of re- for him to get the hero rewrite. There has, there has to be something bad about taking the potion. Cause, yeah. cause he chooses not to, I mean, in, in the end, right? Like he also kind of chooses not to take it a little bit out of spite Yeah, because they, they, you know, they right where he's hanging by his suspenders hilariously from that, like breaking drain pipe and they, and, um, and, uh, Madeline and, uh, what's her name? We're trying to save her, save him. And they basically are like, no, it's great. Drink the potion. And then you'll get, then no matter what happens, you'll still be alive and you can take care of us forever. And you can tell he's like, oh, F that. And yeah. he, <laughs> you know, right. Like he doesn't, he's not like, I, he's not like, this is no, he does say to Lisa a little bit, something like you people need to be stopped, which also is like a weird jump. Like, okay, man, you don't want to be immortal. That's fine. You know, what if you get bored? But but he basically chooses not to take it. I think out of for like the most petty reason, right? He just doesn't want to. He doesn't want to deal with uh, deal with the, the the two women who have controlled his life up to this point. Yeah, mad and hell. <laughs> I just I just never got that yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mad well, and hell. <laughs> uh. So, did you know that this role was originally supposed to, that, that the originally was supposed to be Kevin Klein doing this? That oh, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> what a di- what a different movie that would be. <laughs> they probably got him in, and they were like, "Oh, this guy cannot be boring." <laughs> there's 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 like too much camp going on right here. <laughs> it does explain why there's like I would say that there's like just he does a fantastic amount of running around is a very kinetic performance. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, with yeah. Kevin Klein, that makes sense. In watching Bruce Willis do it, it does kind of feel like you dropped into some deleted scenes from Clue. <laughs> like there's lots of him just like frantically running up da- down staircases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In all these houses that are all like weird Beverly Hills castles that also look <laughs> yeah. like mausoleums. Yeah. It's great, great set dressing touch. Yeah. So I think I, well, what this really comes down to is that Bruce Willis does a, does, does, I think a fairly good job with the material. It's kind of, it's just, it's, it's an, it's what he's asked to do is a little bit odd in that he's supposed, he has to be both boring and then become, and also be kind of kinetic and unhinged. 
and also maybe become the big damn hero at the end. But his heroism involves allowing himself to die. But he survives. It's complicated. Anyway, it's I don't I don't know if he is entirely successful at that. Um, but, but I think he does a pretty workmanlike job. Um, but I think it's worth talking. Can we talk about the performances of um, of Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep for a second here? Yes. Um, I feel like uh, uh, um, uh, Goldie Hawn does a does a she she I think has the largest character range, but also is maybe the more unhinged of the two performances in that she starts off as sort of a Mary in the library and very mousy, you know, clutching her stress rag. Um, and then become the, the, then puts on that terrible fat suit, which did you notice that the count, the camera is fascinated with her butthole. Like there are multiple shots that focus yeah. right in on the right where the anus is on that big fat suit, which is, I remember feel, being a kid and thinking that was really particularly unusual. <laughs> and many times really I unusual? watched it. You're like, wow, it's like, <laughs> that was a choice. Yeah. If, if if really if, if there was one scene that they, or one part they could have cut, I don't know that it's super important that she becomes like the worst stereotype of a cat lady. Um, uh, between between losing Ern, like I don't know that I don't he, I don't know. It's it's I understand that she may be consumed with rage and jealousy and stuff like that, but I don't know that her sort of giving up on herself. I, I say that in heavy irony quotes, you know, just like eating frosting out of a can and having cats and not paying her rent. Um, it feels a little bit bad. Maybe it felt better yeah. in the 90s. Oh, I'm sure it did. I mean, this is this is this is a let's just say less sensitive time. Uh, yeah, it, it didn't it doesn't didn't really add anything to it. I feel like. Well, it makes her transformation. True. Right. Yeah. Like it makes it clear. And you'll notice that she's wearing the pin that Isabella Rossellini gave her oh, yeah. when right, you right, see right. her you in that red dress. Sure, sure. So I think it's like there's no reason she couldty have started more like they right. could have started her as being fat and then mm-hmm. they could have had the story play out right, right, she doesn't right. have to become fat but, yeah. I, mean, but had- I do think it's necessary for her to go at, undergo a extreme physical transformation to stick it to Madeline to make right. the story make oh sense. yeah for sure she 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 needs to she needs to start but but you know she could just be sort of like mousy and demure and then I remember when she seduces her and she does the I'm a woman who can say sexual. Sexy. <laughs> She's a yeah. bunch of the sex, sex, sex in like full Jessica Rabbit mode, sort of. <laughs> but I, I'm just, yeah, I do like the, those cops are reading her her rights. Is there, can, do you get, do you get, is that what happens when the police come to evict you from your apartment for non-payment of rent? Uh, I guess if she's getting arrested. You're under the like, arrest for being we're arresting too you. gross. You're arresting you for being a nasty cat lady. But it, yeah, that's, that, that scene does have one genius part, which is where she's watching the, like, you know, made-for-TV oh, yeah. movie where Meryl Streep is, like, getting getting strangled for whatever reason. And how bad Meryl Streep's acting is in that scene. <laughs> Like it's like intentionally bad, you know. But mm-hmm. like, you, can, you yeah. can't. She, she, her eyes keep cutting towards the camera and stuff. So it's it's super funny to see Meryl Streep doing an intentionally bad job. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. The uh, I agree. The, the we we get more bad '90s stuff too with the like uh, the um, psychiatrist or whatever in the in the like insane asylum like verbally abusing her for being fat and also which is also uh, by that point ronald reagan had closed all of those asylums by that <laughs> right, point that so i don't know why we're even talking about that as a set piece <laughs> frankly 
Uh, thanks, Ronnie. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to read this as feminist satire, it's definitely feminist satire with a lowercase f. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah, it's yeah. not... Like, I don't think that you're going to be able to escape a movie about two um, f- two deeply flawed women who are obsessed with the way that they look such su- such that they become like hollowed out shells of human people and um, and not get some feminist critique yeah, in there yeah. but I think it's lacking um, kind of like the sharp points pointing out like society did this or like this is why these women are this way to allow it to be like really impactful it's feminist critique by the guy who wrote you Forrest Gump so yeah I mean, but right. it's a fun it's it's more um, it floats in I think more of um, more of a romp um, mm. and it's a campy place of Empowerment, which is why it has such a following in the drag queen scene. Yeah, I, th- I think you're totally right. I think it sort of hits like the beats that you would expect. Like we're like, oh yeah, it's like about how being 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 an old broad isn't so bad. That's feminist, right? But I kind of think if you like interrogate it, it it could kind of lead you in a bad place because is this really the story of like Doctor Ernest Menville, the brilliant, eminent plastic surgeon who's <laughs> whose life was ruined by two shrewish, horrible women, so much so that he can't even operate anymore. And then they get involved in a bunch of supernatural, uh, supernatural bunkum that ruins their lives and maybe will ruin his life. But he has the moral character to turn it down and is rewarded with a good back 50, you know, back half of his life. If the screenwriter had like a super bitter divorce recently, so you'd be like, yeah. oh yeah, I see what this guy's going And And I don't really, I don't really think that, I, I don't think that the movie is really um, informed by ideology. I, I, I totally believe that what it really came down is they're like, oh crap, how are we going to end this? Is there anybody good? You know, that, and so I don't think, like, I don't think that that's really the thesis of the movie, but I'm just saying that like all of those pieces are there too. So you're, so I think what you're left with is who has the performances you like, who's enjoyable to watch, and it's yeah, Ralph Stewart and Goldie Hawn, and you're like, yeah, they're terrible. They know they're terrible. Let's revel yeah. in the terribleness. They're kind of feminist the same way that Ursula the Sea Witch is feminist in uh in also also a gay icon. Yeah, in uh, Little Mermaid, you're like. She's big. She's brassy. She owns her own business, and um, she's kind of evil. <laughs> she's like, she has a she she has a fishtail for legs exchange voice program. Yeah, she's got a you know what she's she's making it. She's got a hustle. Yeah. <laughs> like, is it is it is it morally correct? No, but do we like her more than most of the characters? Yeah, yeah, yeah we do. I mean, um, I I think that that's like kind of. Uh, in addition to the fact that I think that because we have two great uh, actors portraying Madeline and Helen, that makes them very likable. You know, they get all the laugh lines. They are incredibly funny in this movie. Um, and you understand their motivations, even if they are not good motivations. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um but I think it's also that we we like them enough to to be delighted by them, but also we don't like them enough to feel gleeful about their misfortune. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that that's like a Tales from the Crypt hat trick, right yeah. there. Yeah. No, it's it like, and, and and it totally makes sense because it's, this is the Seinfeld thing, right? Where like it's terrible people being terrible, but it's sort of wonderful. Uh. I, I, I was just thinking about the performances and everything. I just thought of, do you remember how great the scene is where um, 
Madeline knows that uh, Helen and Ernest are going to come visit her in her dressing room and her like flunky or her dresser, whoever that woman is, is like they're coming. And so she's like, just hold on for a second. And you see her. She like shrugs the gown off her shoulders. So her boobs are out and then like practices like her her surprised face like a couple times. I love that oh, scene. Yeah, I love it. It's so great. And then she comes and she's like, oh, Helen or Helen. I'm I'm pretty sure also just the way that that um, her like assistant is made up and the way that she is dressed in that scene. I'm pretty sure that's a send up to All About Eve. Mm. There's a lot of like golden uh, age of Hollywood sure. send ups, I think, over the course, like all the stairway, all the staircase junk is, I think, about Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also, I mean, the, the play she's in is based on a Tennessee, well, it's a musical version of a Tennessee Williams play. <laughs> yeah, Songbird. Um, so, you know, yeah, Songbird, the musical about, uh, musical version of Sweet Bird of Youth, mm-hmm. which um, is a play about like, like an aging gigolo who wants to be an actor, uh, meeting up with an actress who was successful, but is running away from criticism. A Blanche Dubois. Not quite, but... Um, and going, yeah, it's the whole thing where like youth and it's a story about sort of failure and the desire to be young and to pretend to be successful. As I understand it, I've not seen it myself, but mm-hmm. yeah, these, these sort of interesting themes kind of weave throughout of the references to other pieces that are explicitly sort of golden age. Even the the Marlene was not was it Marlene Dietrich who said I wanted to be alone? I I want to be alone. No, that's um, uh, Greta Garbo. Greta, yeah, Garbo. Greta Garbo, who who is also name checked or is. Mm-hmm. He's also among, among the immortals. Who are mostly people from the 60s. <laughs> and James Dean. <laughs> Jimmy Dean. Huh. James Dean. I um I, I also love the her opening song, um, which is kind of a sort of sets up as like I'm looking in the mirror and I'm thinking about myself, and then like everything she talks about is just surface stuff and <laughs> like traditional female societal roles and then it's like we see you you see me (laughs) (laughs) hussy goddess prince whatever you know all this kind of stuff um what i love is that bruce willis like freaking loves it like rising to his feet applauding (laughs) as like the rest of the as 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 everyone else is leaving people are leaving but but the first yeah the first spoken words are i can't believe they made a musical version of this thing yeah (laughs) But in some sense, it's also like maybe it's also like the, the kind of like you know, um, these women are terrible wi- are, are are terrible people, but also they typify a terrible kind of femininity. And Bruce Willis uh, or you know Ernest Menville is exactly the kind of terrible man who loves that terrible thing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the play is. I wouldn't have risen from my feet and left that play. But yeah, it's not. It's oh, certainly no, no, not no. profound. Yeah. So talking, yeah, yeah. You're supposed, to, yes. The way they act, how terrible it is. You're just kind of like, I mean, it's okay. You're like, have you ever been to a high school production of right, Oklahoma? Yeah. <laughs> it's better than that. Hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah, I think that it's ultimately who do you, who do we enjoy watching? <laughs> and this this is definitely in the the canon of powerful women in film quote unquote mm-hmm. right like yeah. these characters aren't aren't good um, and they're not traditionally made to be likable but we like them anyway because it's fun to see immoral people trying to win a game that's rigged against them yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't even think they're especially and I you certainly didn't say this they're not even complicated characters we're not like no 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 they're, they're not. not they're not going breaking bad where we're like supposed to feel no. bad for Madeline because you know someone was mean to her in third grade and that's why she's terrible now <laughs> No, it's just like it's like they're complicated because they're like selfish kind of bad people. Yeah, yeah. We get with the big roles, big roles. It's fun and it's in a fun mannered universe. 
Um, I suspect there's also quite a bit just by the way that these women are both styled. I think that there's like a, a lot of callback to um, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Oh, yeah. Throughout yeah. this entire thing. So I think it's also a little bit of a love letter to like the old broads of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Ernest even uh, derogatorily, derogatorily refers to Madeline as a broad. There you go. Fascinating. Fascinating. But moment. like, who who's the main woman of this time to have weird eyes in Hollywood? Goldie Hawn. Yeah, true. <laughs> who's the woman who can do anything and has kind of like above reproach? Meryl Streep. Yeah. I also like hmm. that they play against type here. Yeah. So in general, I would think, um, you know, when they have that big fight between the two of them and they kind of finally lay out like what is the back what's the backstory behind their rivalry the issue is that um helen thinks that uh madeline is is like is a hussy mm-hmm. and, tr- and and trashy and that uh madeline thinks that um Helen is uh, has always treated her like she's dirt and is an intellectual snob. And I would suspect that if you were to like map that out, generally people would think that Meryl Streep is the more intellectual <laughs> actress given her roles, yeah. and Goldie Hawn is like the more like trashy young ingenue. So it's fun that they reversed those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, what I do think it's more successful at from a satire angle, apart from like I think it is success, like it is successful, and it's like I would call it a lowercase feminist movie, um, is that you have this aging women in Hollywood angle, which I think is actually wildly successful over the course of this film. Um, what did you guys think? Yeah, I don't. Um, I I mean I, I agree. I think it's it's certainly here. Um, and uh, the um. It's fun. It's fun to see it um, uh, in a way that's not just um, that, that that is not wholly self serious because it's almost a it's a, it, it's become almost a cliched thing. It's like <laughs> it's this terrible problem that nobody actually seems to be bothered to try and fix. Uh, <laughs> and so I think that um, by bringing in the uh, supernatural angle, that you can kind of make points and point it out without without it just being another movie about movies. Um, which is which is kind of fun. I also love the um, I, the heightened reality is fun too. Like that weird kind of Euro sal- plastic surgery salon that uh, that Madeline goes to, where all the stylists are sort of vaguely French, and they're wearing those goofy like smock dresses where you can see their slips and their garter belts. <laughs> it's like you know, and um, there's that awesome and mirrors are a huge motif in this movie right but you see the door open and the, and there's a mirror on the back of the door and you see somebody in some sort of like super upsetting weird like circular rig and he's being i think it's a man actually yeah is being like tilted up and down and then it looks like there's some sort of like 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 cardiac bypass machine attached to him and his blood is being like pumped around and it's like sinister and maybe is like when i watched the first time there's like probably the single scariest shot in the movie <laughs> It lingers just a bit, just like, too. Oh my gosh, what yeah. is that? Yeah, and it. And, like you don't know. Not enough to, to like figure out what's happening. But right. right. There's also there's another like interestingly sort of subtle frightening thing in the ER when Ernest is looking for the doctor. Mm-hmm. And he pokes at just like the waiting room, and there's a man who's like 
knees are just bleeding profusely oh, yeah. in his elbows. And it's like he's just in, like dressed in like tennis clothes, yeah. bleeding aggressively, having a very casual conversation. Yeah. It's very strange. <laughs> I feel like there's a joke in there that I just don't get. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. You're like, is this, a, is this a reference? Am I supposed to? Yeah, it felt very much intentional. Mm-hmm. Or it might just be ascribing too much. Uh, no, intent. no, you're totally right. You're totally right. And this movie, and really, this movie is so awesome at like mood and feeling. Remember when he goes down to the mm-hmm. morgue and there are like those three nuns that are like oh, gliding yeah. above the floor, the floating nuns. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like and the, it's and it's scary and funny at the same time. Yeah, everything. Mm-hmm. It, this is so good at like just the weird moods. Uh, in the same way, like I kind of think Lisa. I, I I know why you like this, Andrew, because Liesel has a lot has the same like weird otherworldly energy that Zool has in Ghostbusters. <laughs> it's a perfect kids movie. Yeah, right, go. which is yeah, another another right, great movie for right. children. Bring it, bring it back to women in Hollywood. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, yes, uh mirrors are a humor motif. I like that um Madeline sleeps in a giant compact mm-hmm. her mirror. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. she has that big round mirror oh, over her that. over That's her great. bed. Mm-hmm. Um but I also liked so so obviously the like the baseline thing is what if you know in Hollywood women's careers are largely dependent on how good they look and how young they are that's like the currency of of an actress where whereas her inner worth and talents are pretty much secondary to those things um, and you these women are like given a, a losing game right that stuff is gonna go mm-hmm. no matter what they do basically but. They're 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 asked to rise to the challenge, and and so to see people kind of dive into that mentality so fully is horrifying. That's mm-hmm. like a, the one of the big horror elements of this story. But I also like I thought that the smartest thing it did was that it made it clear that the po- the potion is a cheat, and all the attractive people who are offering advice on how to stay attractive and relevant have all done that cheat. Oh. <laughs> so like Helen did it right, and then she yeah. writes a book about staying forever young. Hmm. Madeline is going to do it and like attribute it to her own her own abilities and her own inner beauty. Yeah. And then Madeline's facialist, who's like running a clinic trying to tell help people like with like you know collagen scrubs and whatever that oscillating blood transfusion techn- technology is. Also did it because he's at Liesl's party. I also love the subdle little play where like he's adjusting his eye. Oh did yeah, catch yeah. That? The oh, eye yeah. Super, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love like, that. And you're like, oh, so when you when you realize what's going on, you're like, oh god, that's so creepy. Yeah, but I like that it's that this is that the the promises of Hollywood and the promises of of immortal youth are not byproducts of things that an average person will have and an average yeah. and not in something that they would even share with an average person that it's a byproduct of insider knowledge wealth and of course sacrifices that are far beyond hmm. anything a normal person would be willing to do yeah um, which is one's own mortality and potentially soul if you believe my vampire theory yeah um, and I thought that that was like that. That is that is actually pretty cutting and 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 good critique. Yeah. Of of mm-hmm. what we're talking about here, that this is not something that's achievable by an average person. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Another angle I thought about is is maybe it's also a little bit about the stresses of fame. They kept they keep talking about how it's very important that they take care of their image now, because. Their bot, like even though they're physical bodies, they're going to disappear, 
their legacy will have to continue to live on, Mm -hmm. which was definitely a thing in the golden age of Hollywood, right? Like, nobody could know that Mary Pickford liked to have a whiskey every once in a while because (laughs) that wasn't her image. So she had to, like, hide that about herself. Or, like... We make an enormous deal out of um, out of the feuds that the few feuds we knew about because it was so secretive and so so hidden. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's really about how like maintaining one's image um, is is ultimately a losing battle and um, and kind of rots you with from within. Yeah. No matter how you slice it, I do. I am glad that at the end. Um, the ladies get the last word uh, towards Ernest. Even if I, I don't necessarily, I know what you're saying and understand what you're saying with the reading where he gets to be the ultimate hero. Mm-hmm. I do think that we aren't supposed to like Ernest and maybe even the tension is just going to be like, that we're like, him? Like, really? He did all those wonderful things? I don't yeah, believe, yeah. you know what I mean? Sure. Like, sure. maybe it's just like tension in the audience where you're not supposed to like enjoy the fact that he lived his life well. <laughs> um, yeah, like you don't, you don't, it, I, it's hard to imagine anyone really feeling any enough sympathy for that character to 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 be to care that yeah. he that he ended up okay. Yeah, you but know? I do I do like that the last thing that these women are allowed to do, say to to anyone really is to sneer at the idea that one's good deeds actually is is what it takes to have a mortal life. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> no, it's 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 there's a lot there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Are you ready to rate the sucker? I think so. Nothing would make me happier. Thomas, would you like to take it away? Sure, sure. I thought it was great. Um, I liked it a lot. Um, I think uh, uh, that uh, we've said everything there is to say. Um, what's funny is it actually it feels weird to be like, this is a beautiful movie. This is a beautiful movie about ugly people, and it looks so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but I love the I love the, the they do a great job of. Um, uh, 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 conveying the performances are good. The, the, they uh, it has great mood and sort of um, atmosphere and everything. I do think there maybe are some kind of narrative issues, but you, you really don't care. It's because it's not it's not really about about that. You're not you know sitting down like looking for plot holes or being like, man, this doesn't seem consistent with what's gone before. So I give <laughs> How this. How did ca- he fix the hole? <laughs> right, right, like, <laughs> torso. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I assume Bondo. Bondo. Yeah, yeah, yeah fill Bondo. it up. Bondo. Maybe he's got like a big caulking gun or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, I'll give this one like four and a half cans, uh, four four and a half out of five cans of spray paint. Very nice. Number nine acrylic. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will. Uh, Andrew, would you like to go last yeah, as our guest? Sure. Um, I really like this movie. I feel like in addition to being a enjoyable film to watch, it's a good like rainy day movie kind of thing. Um, I think that it is hitting all of the high marks of what a Tales from the Crypt movie should be, which is like, it definitely has a moral. It's a little bit fuzzy on what the moral is, <laughs> but it's there. Yeah. Um, and uh, it even so, I've had this, I've had a track record thus far of not really liking the movies that have the big name or the uh, episodes that have the big name actors in them. And. I think that this movie would not be as good if it did not have these actors in it by far. So I think it's great that it also was transcended the small screen and made it into a feature film. So I think it was like the right choice hmm. 
to take it in this direction, even if it was a happy accident. So I'm think I say, and we have um, detestable people who are highly watchable and highly likable, despite the fact that they are so detestable, without having to be like Walter White complex. They're just fun. Mm-hmm. They're just fun, which is like which is like as I said, is the Tales from the Crypt hat trick. So I think that this is a five out of five uh, neck propping statement necklaces. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Uh, I love this movie. I've loved this movie for twenty-seven goddamn I've years. This movie, my whole life, basically as long as I can remember. Um, it it means so much to to look back on this really weird, really specific thing from my youth, and to be able to still appreciate it, unlike a lot of things uh, due to the, the the ravages of time. So with uh, just five out of five cherished childhood memories. Aww. <laughs> so, Andrew, do you do you have a favorite part? Um, like when you were a kid, did you like you must have loved like all the special effects and stuff, right? Or like what, I, I mean, like what the do you shovel remember fight. Being, like, the shovel fight is what I remember the most. I think yeah. I think um, I, I do recall. I, I I didn't actually recall, but as soon as I saw it, um, the way Susan it's not Susan Sarandon, Jesus, the way that um, Goldion uh, Helen looks after being shot and rising up from yeah, the pool the, is the scariest thing in the world. Yeah, with her even is, crazier than normal crazy eyes. Oh my in god, this, yeah. In this performance. Giving Goldie Hawn's gigantic eyes creepy pale contact lenses is just like a brilliant choice. And and the whole, yeah, like, I still, like now I know how they did the effects, very basically, but they were just so weirdly magical as a kid that that whole scene is just fantastic. Like, yeah, that's great. When she sits down, no, oh, yeah, when, she sits, in the movie, yes, yes, when she yes. sits down on the couch <laughs> and the the broken handle of the shovel that had been used as a spear goes right through the hole in her abdomen. Yeah. And she says, Beautiful. you know what? I thought you were cheap. Yep. Perfect. Perfect <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Hmm. Um, Meryl Streep accidentally cut Goldie Hawn's face with a shovel when they were having a shovel fight. Oh God! Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why Goldie had to transition to being a mom. Maybe that's why uh, Meryl Streep can't do action roles anymore. Yeah. They're Ooh. like, do not give this woman a shovel. Two method. Yeah. It was a full on. It was like a Mark Hamill situation. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Wow. Um. All right. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a treat. What a treat. What a dream. Well, it's been a treat to, to be here. To have you on our pod. Thank you for having me. Uh, anything you'd like to plug? Well, um, I am, you might not realize this, uh, producer on a number of shows on the Outrageous Mechanisms podcast network. No Maybe way. you've heard of it. I don't know. Wait, hold on. Uh, well, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what's that good work? Yeah. Um, so I would just like... Who's this guy? Who's this guy? I'd love to plug uh, everything you can find at OutrageousMechanisms.com. That would be this show, Crypt Creepers. Another show called Space Bras. Another show called Categorical Oracle. Which Adrian and I are both on. Indeed. So, but not mega me. I'm plug not on for that. that. You were twice. <laughs> Thus far. Although, Thus far. considering the way you behaved last time... I'm not sure. Yeah, I've well, been on sure. it as many times as Meryl Streep had won Oscars at this point in her career. Yeah. 
Wow. There you go. Thank you, Andrew. We'll definitely make sure to listen to this podcast that mm. we are all sometimes featured on, at least. <laughs> uh, Good. Uh, Till next time. Uh, so next time, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled program. Um, when we move next door to an insurance agent who will learn that he is not the only neighbor coveting the client's wife in season two's uh, seventh episode, The Sacrifice. Thanks for listening to Crypt Creepers. Please check us out on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the podcatching platform of your choice to subscribe, rate, and review us. Um, be, f- be sure to check us out at outrageousmechanisms.com slash crypt-creepers to see all our show notes and find other excellent podcasts. We also have a Amazon affiliate link, um, both in the show description and also on the website. So if you feel like you need to... Uh, Send some coin John Kassir's way. Do not buy uh, Death Becomes Her because I don't think he had anything to do with it. But there are a lot of other good people attached to this, and uh, it's certainly worth a watch. But if you did buy Death Becomes Her, um, we would get some coin, which then we would send to John Kassir oh, contractually. Mm-hmm. What a yeah. vul- the vulgar topic of coin. <laughs> the vulgar topic of coin. <laughs> Till next time, kitties. Madeline and Helen really should have watched where they were going. They spent so much time painting each other to look like Venus arising from the sea. But one wrong step, and they splatted into a messy cracks and pollock. Outrageous.